So the following story is what I call sanctified fiction. Much of this individual's childhood simply isn't known, but in an effort to help us understand this was a real person who faced real pressures and dealt with real issues, events and attitudes have been extrapolated from Scripture, which may or may not have taken place. So if you would use your sanctified imagination with me, and let's listen to this story. He was one of many siblings, almost too numerous to count, born somewhere in the middle of the lot. His childhood was probably as happy as it could have been, having been born to a royal family with all the privileges and responsibilities that came with noblesse oblige, that unwritten obligation that nobility must behave honorably and generously towards its subjects. Rumor had it that his mother, one of the king's several wives, had been previously married, but try as he might, he could not uncover enough facts to prove or disprove this. As a child, he rarely saw his father and, frankly, lived somewhat in awe of the musician, warrior, king. As he grew older, it seemed he was expected to play a role in the ever-present palace intrigue, something he loathed. The murderous and immoral lifestyles of his older siblings were shocking at times and a poor example to God's people. He would much rather have spent time with the old prophet, Nathan, whose unique perspective of life came from a close walk with Adonai, the Lord God. It was Nathan who told him about his father's younger years, long before he was king of Israel, if such a thing could even be imagined. He learned of Samuel, the prophet, through whom Yahweh made his will regarding the Israelites known. He learned how Samuel, under divine direction, anointed his father to be king when he was still just a boy, eliciting disdain and disapproval from his over older brothers. Nathan told of the king's gradual 15-year ascent to the throne and power, a long process facilitated by Adonai, the prophet was quick to point out. As he approached manhood, it became clear the king had plans for him. He was stunned to learn Adonai had spoken to his father through Nathan, forbidding him to accomplish that which he had most desired, to build the temple, a permanent resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, the renowned symbol of God's covenant and law, which had traveled with the Israelites from the time of their earliest wanderings in the wilderness. More than anything, David wanted to honor Adonai, by building a dwelling for his presence, as if God's presence could be contained within a structure created by human hands. Nonetheless, this was King David's great ambition, driven by his love and devotion for God. But it wasn't to be. Instead, that great task would fall to he, Solomon. This seemed unlikely, for Solomon knew others had designs toward the throne. How could he begin to compete with older brothers like Absalom and Adonijah, whom the Israelites held in almost as much awe as their father, in spite of their apparent moral bankruptcy? Solomon was a nobody, and that was fine with him. 
Nonetheless, at the king's command, his education was accelerated. Surprised by his father's affection, Solomon never imagined he would have earned the aging king's attentions to any great degree, not to mention King David's urgent yet patient mentoring. Those coming-of-age years were life-changing for Solomon. As his own affection for the king grew deeper, so did his devotion to Adonai. For it became increasingly clear that his father was more serious about his service and obedience to God than anything else in life. The impression King David's relationship with God made upon Solomon was profound and greatly influenced his worldview, at least during the early years of his reign. Upon his succession as king, Solomon dealt harshly with palace intrigue, his posture of zero tolerance quickly becoming known. He implemented his father's designs for the temple and over a period of a dozen or so years, completed construction of both it and his own palace. Peace became the hallmark of Solomon's reign, something the Israelites had not enjoyed since their arrival to the promised land generations before. His reputation for brilliance was legendary. And it was said that an intimate relationship with none other than Adonai himself was the source of Solomon's great wisdom, that they actually met and conversed together from time to time. He was fabulously wealthy, immensely successful. The world's most influential people travel far and wide just for an audience with him. In short, Solomon had everything anyone could possibly ever want or hope for. It was no wonder many of his subjects held him in even greater awe than they ever had his father. But Solomon wasn't satisfied. Over time, human nature asserted itself, and he fell in love, not just once, but repeatedly, or so he believed. So many times, in fact, that women became his obsession. All in all, 700 wives, most descended from royalty, and 300 concubines consumed his time and his heart. Sadly, the great majority of these were not daughters of Israel. They worshipped foreign gods and enticed Solomon into despicable practices which, had David known, would have broken his father's heart. So much so that that much later in life, he received another visit from Adonai. And that conversation didn't go nearly as well for Solomon as the ones which had taken place during the early years of his reign. A prolific author, Solomon was known primarily for his Proverbs. Most of his early writings were a clear indication of his relationship with God, in which his love and obedience were evident. His later work, however, was much darker, as he wrote under the pen name, The Preacher. Unlike his younger self, the preacher's writings were full of irony and cynicism, clearly jaded from his many years of excess and departure from God's ways. Even so, at the end of the day, an older, sadder, and perhaps even wiser, if that were possible, King Solomon 
could not help but write, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. And if you'll turn with me there now, and uh, I should have mentioned before the story, if young ones uh, would like to go now, I think most of you have, but if you'd like to go downstairs, that's fine. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back, there's probably some in the pews in front of you, but turn with me there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we'll read it together starting at verse 8. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So if you're reading from something different, it might sound a little different to you. That's okay. Verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. Verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So we see in this passage of Scripture that the preacher urges the reader to find satisfaction in God and his gifts rather than in money and in possession. According to the preacher, pursuing satisfaction in money and possessions is meaningless because first, we'll never have enough. In verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Secondly, will attract leeches. I'm not talking about the little critters you put on your fish hook when you're out at the reservoir. I'm talking about those who are attracted to gain and wealth uh, from others. 
Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Will not sleep well. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. We'll hurt ourselves. Verse 13, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. We'll never truly be secure. Verse 14, or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. We're going to leave it behind. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Verse 17, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. As I began to read this passage a few weeks ago, it, it, was, it was stark. And I don't know about you, but when I begin to read the scripture, several things happen. Um, I begin to run, run my own life through scripture as a filter. I, I certainly take the passages that I'm reading, and I guess I've just done it for so much and for so long that it's natural to me to take those passages and line them up with other portions of Scripture uh, just to kind of bring the whole thing into a broader focus. And I'll be honest, as I read this, this chapter, it was just kind of stark to me. It was kind of like, whoa, and, and we know this kind of intuitively. Any of us who have any kind of walk with God or understand Christ's teaching as he told his disciples the love of money is the root of all evil, uh, to which they responded, well, and who can be saved? And, of course, Jesus replied, well, uh, with man, things are impossible, but the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Good thing for us, right? That's a good place for an amen. So, so I read this chapter and was like, wow. But then I got to thinking, okay, I've known a lot of guys throughout my life and, and even in today's society, who are like, have a lot of money and seem to have a lot of things, but they seem to be pretty happy. In fact, they seem to really enjoy what they do. And let's face it, guys, we, we live in a time in world history and, and are privileged to live in a culture and in a country where by historical worldly standards, even maybe by Solomon standards, all of us are like sick, crazy rich. We have so much, and, and we don't even realize what we have so much of the time. But, but the truth is we're, we're so, so inundated with material wealth. Everything is pretty much right at the tip of our, our fingers. And if you don't believe me, join Amazon Prime. And I mean, it's literally right there at the tip of your fingers. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just, that's just our reality, right? And so I began to think about this and thinking, okay, but, but is this relevant? I mean, is this really relevant today? I mean, how many, how many guys do I know that really kind of fall into this? And so I began to think, and, and I remembered way back in 1975, 76, I was 13 or 14. Some of you might remember this, especially those of you that are a little bit older than I am. Does, does the name Howard Hughes ring a bell to anybody? Um, for those of you who don't know who Howard Hughes was, he was the Bill Gates of, of his time. 
but it was not in computer science or computers. It was in aviation. And the guy was like mega rich. And I remember when I was, uh, when I was 13, 14, I remember hearing in the news, and I mean, even as a 13-year-old, this impressed me, that, that Howard Hughes had died. And then there was this story about all these kind of sketchy circumstances surrounding his death and how he, 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 he had no friends. He basically lived as a pauper. And, and I mean, I'm thinking, okay, this, is, this guy's a billionaire, which like in 1975 was no, no small thing. And so I began to think about that, so I did a little research. Now, this is from an article in Star Magazine dated March 28th of this year. So we're talking four or five months ago. Renowned film director, pilot, and business magnate Howard Hughes died on April 5th, 1976, at the age of 70. For decades, he was a major name in America and the world known and world known for founding... Hughes Aircraft Company, and dating Hollywood's most gorgeous starlets. His crowd consisted of beauties like Catherine Hepburn and Ava Gardner, but despite being one of the richest and most successful men in the world, Hughes turned recluse in the last 20 years of his life. As he disappeared from the spotlight, his health slipped away from him. Now, Reels News docuseries Autopsy, Howard Hughes is... Um, is is exposing details from Hughes' autopsy and showing viewers the real reason for his mysterious death. On April 1975, the business mogul checked into the Xanadu Princess Hotel in the Bahamas. Now increasingly immobile at the age of 69, he spent his time alone, watching films and sleeping. Getty Images he would sometimes watch movies over and over again, five or six times in a 24-hour period, never leaving that room, says Hughes biographer James B. Steele. The star became more and more detached from his business operations and shut himself off to his legacy, his loved ones, and the world. After Hughes broke his hip, he never walked again. He wasn't drinking liquids. He wasn't eating right. He wasn't getting exercise. He was slowly deteriorating, and he developed bed sores as a result, so the pain was multiplying, says Hughes biographer Jeff Schumacher. He died of kidney failure one year later. That's stunning. And the world was shocked. And frankly, that's a little more consistent with what we're reading here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And then some of you might remember this story that, that, that went along with it, if you remember the name Melvin, du Melvin Dumar. And this is from December 8th of last year. So we're not talking 40 years ago. We're talking last December. On a long drive through the Nevada desert, one night in 1967, Melvin Dumar spotted a scruffy man lying by the side of the road. He picked him up and drove him to Las Vegas. During the ride, he said the man told him he was Howard Hughes. The encounter might have been forgotten except for what happened nine years later when Mr. Hughes, one of the richest men in the world, died. Mr. Dumar claimed to have received a copy of his handwritten will, and lo and behold, it said that Mr. Hughes had left him one-sixteenth of his estate, an estimated $156 million. Eventually, the courts ruled that the will was a forgery, but for a short time, the nation, nation the United States, the world was captivated by this story. Howard Hughes? Lying in the ditch on the road in rural Utah? How on earth can this be? 
And of course, we see this, this person, Melvin Dumar, I think that refers back to, to the leeches. And I'm sure that during his lifetime, Howard Hughes, for that matter, Bill Gates, the rest of them uh, didn't, uh, could not, uh, wouldn't be at want for, for, for those who were leeches. And, and did I say Bill Gates earlier, had, who was one of the richest men in the world? Or I was talking about Steve Jobs. I've never gotten those confused before in my life. Say what? They'd be offended. They would really be offended. They really would. So, obviously there are many wealthy individuals whose experience with wealth is significantly different from that of Howard Hughes. Hence, verses 18 and 19, and maybe you know some. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. So I want to be quick to say here that it's not the riches and the wealth that, that we're casting stones at, right? And it's not... The, necessarily a, a lifestyle of affluency, but but we're, what we're warning against and where the danger is is to chase after those things. Okay, so let's have kind of a come to Jesus moment here. Okay, how many of you have walked out of the grocery store and you've seen like a really nice new car? And it could be a Ford, right? Maybe it's a Ford Escape, right? And it's right there. And you walk out and, and you see the sticker in the window. And you go, oh, that thing is so shiny. That's so beautiful. And I love the color. In fact, I love Fords or whatever it is you happen to love. And then you turn and you go to your car and you go, I need a new car. And, and there's nothing wrong with your car. It has a couple little dings on it, you know, and it's not maybe quite as shiny. It has a few more thousand miles on it. But, but the truth is there's nothing wrong with your car, but you spend the rest of that day thinking, I think my life would be a little bit better if I had a new car. I'd be, I'd be a little more comfortable. Wouldn't have to worry about taking it to the shop. And, and you know, I would, could drive around a little more or a little less self-conscious than I do now with this thing with the dings and scratches on it. So that leads to one thing, and then you go home and you pull it up online. Oh, Stout Ford is having a sale. Check this out, honey. We can save $4,000 right now off this $29,000 car. We should go do this. And then you go to the salesman, and he says, no, actually, you can save $5,000. So it's a done deal, and now you have a $500 a month car payment, whereas yesterday you had none because you drove that older car with scratches and dings on it. That's how we tend to think, right? And unless we arrest that, and unless we go, no, no, wait a minute, stop, stop, stop. I refuse to find my joy and satisfaction in a piece of metal that in two years is going to look just like this piece of metal. There's a word for that, folks. It's, Jesus calls it the deceptiveness of riches. Right? And we won't even talk about housing or, or vacations or, or whatever it is that tends to captivate our hearts. 
And, and the, the truth is, and here's another true confession, I'm on Amazon.com probably way too much. But Caleb's not. But then again, I do live in Jamestown, so there's a little bit of excuse for that. But my wish list, but, and I will say my wish list is probably too long, but at least I have a wish list. That's all the times I thought, oh, this is really nice to have, but no, I'm not going to do this, and it goes on a wish list. And eventually, most of the time, it's just, it's forgotten. I was always surprised, and I guess the Lord just protected me growing up as a missionary and growing up as, as a pastor's son the inclination of my heart was always to the Lord. And I remember always being somewhat confused as I reached my junior and senior year of high school and even into college. I was always a little confused by friends and classmates whose motivating drive in their occupational choice was, I can make a lot of money if I do this. And if I go to school in this degree, it'll set me up and and I can, make, you know, I can make money and I'll live a happy, successful life. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, but I've spent my life pursuing Jesus and pursuing God and pursuing his will for my life. And can I just tell you that we've wanted for nothing and God's always provided. And, and I consider myself incredibly wealthy with six kids and 11 grandchildren and two more on the way and who all love Jesus and walk in his ways and seek the Lord and, and a number of them in his service. Folks, there's not a price tag you can attach to that. And the Lord sees that and knows that. So how do we resist the pull to, to this, this natural inclination that we have to, to look at the next newest and best thing and go, I, I want that. Well, there are some antidotes, and we're going to look at them. And I'm going to read quite a bit of Scripture, and I encourage you to really listen because Scripture directly addresses these six antidotes. Now, remember, the, the, this, is, this seems formulaic, but, but it's not a formula. And as I thought through characteristics that I've seen in other godly men and women and some that I've experienced myself, what I've tried to do is list a few things that have kind of kept me on the right path and have kept me from from the pursuit of money and wealth as being the thing that satisfies me. So I'm going to lay them on you, and I'm going to give you some Scripture, and I want you to understand that the scripture behind this is what drives us. And it's a mindset, right? It's where our minds go. It's where our heart should go. So here we go. Top of the list. Recognize God's sovereignty. Isaiah 43, 25. And if you want to try to follow me, you can. The scriptures are up there. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 45, I'm the Lord and there is no none other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. 
for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 20. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Daniel, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel got it. He understood it. He understood that it's all about God, folks, and that our, our very salvation, that confession through which we are saved, the blood of Jesus which was shed, ultimately, while it benefits us, clearly, eternally, ultimately was for his name's sake to bring glory to the Father. That's the first thing that we have to remember when we think about where our satisfaction lies. Two, let's understand what God requires. Wait a minute, Pastor Mark, can I do that? Oh, you bet. You betcha. There you go. That's more North Dakota. Yeah, absolutely. Can you understand what God requires? It's right there, Micah 6, 8. He's told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Believe what God has done. John 3.16, one of the most famous chapter verses of Scripture in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Side note, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your prime directive on this world, as long as you live and draw breath, is to proclaim the message of reconciliation. It's not to succeed in your job, which is fine. It's not to succeed in your marriage, which is fine too. It's not to raise your kids properly, which is okay. It is to be a minister of the gospel and an ambassador for Christ. That is our prime direction. That's another good place for an amen. Fourthly, perceive, this is a hard one, perceive what God is doing. And it's a hard one because we typically have tunnel vision. And my wife, Julie, will tell you that I probably have tunnel vision more than anyone else in this room, but that's okay. It's just the way God made me, and I'm used to it, and she loves me in spite of it. Amen. But seriously, that's the way our lives are, right? We have tunnel vision about just our own lives and what's around us. We, we perceive what's in front of our face, where we're going that moment, but so many times we don't stop to perceive beyond that. Folks, why do you think a quiet time is so important every day? Why do you think it's so important to take 30 minutes out of your day and sit down and just give your mind to the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and just stop and contemplate and consider what God is doing and, and steep yourself in His truth. That's the only way we truly come to perceive life in the same light that our Savior does. It just doesn't happen any other way. People say to me, Mark, how can you work in Pheasanton? North Dakota, how can you drive 82 miles every day there and back? Like, guys, I love that time because it is isolated time with just me and Jesus in a car driving through the beautiful countryside. And, and I wouldn't trade that time for anything. Isaiah 43. This is dealing with perceiving now, right? Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Jesus, in, in the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 16, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Did you just catch that? Jesus just said to the disciples, guys, I've got so much to say to you, but, but you can't take them in right now. It, it would be more than you're able to, to, to take in. So, so, yeah, so what's the time frame for that? I mean, he's getting ready to go be crucified, and then he's going to rise from the dead, and about a month later is going to ascend. So, so when is he going to impart all of this to his disciples? Well, here it is. When the spirit of truth comes, and, and who, who's the spirit of truth? Who are we talking about? Yeah, the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Godhead. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. 
Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It is astonishing to me that, that we, children of the living God, born again, sanctified by the blood of Christ, walking in the newness of life in the Spirit, engage in a perception that's this, this big when it could be like this. And all we have to do is make a margin for it. Moving on. And there are a couple of other passages up there, and I urge you to use your phone to take a picture if you need to. I will not be offended and, and, and research out these, these verses on your own this week at home. I will give you one more out of John 14. If anyone loves me, this is Jesus again, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home the Greek word abode, we will abide with him. Well, if you want your perception, if you want to perceive what God is doing, just begin to experience him dwelling with you. I guarantee you, your perception will, will, will blow wide open. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear isn't mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So you deal with anxiety? You deal with uncertainty? You deal with fear? Are, are do you make decisions based on that which you are insecure about? And it causes you to respond to other people in other situations, frankly, in matters that are just ungodly, because you're driven by this uncertainty on the inside. That's not the type of perception that Jesus is talking about when he says, let not your heart be troubled. It's huge. Perception is huge. And finally, and I, I couldn't walk away from the sermon without adding the sixth point, actively engage with a community of Christ followers. I chose that wording carefully. I could easily have said, just be involved in, in Christian community. It, in our day and age, Christian can mean so many different things. I wanted to delineate and underscore Christ follower. That is someone who makes it his or her goal in life to be obedient to the teachings of Christ. A, a disciple. That's what a Christ follower is. And there are scriptures up here. I don't even have them. I'm not going to read them because we've talked about this so much. But, but these scriptures, and again, if you want to take a shot or go to the website, will describe the fellowship of believers and why that is so important. In our lives. Can I just say to you, if you consider yourself to, to be a, a part of Buffalo City Church, and you've come to the place where this kind of feels like home to you, but you've not yet engaged in a community group, I'm just going to say there's no way this can be home to you. I, I mean, th this can on Sunday mornings to, to a degree, but you will not truly get to know this fellowship until you decide to engage in community 
with groups throughout this fellowship that meet all week long. How many of you are engaged in a community group that, and meet weekly or pretty close to weekly? Let me see. Yeah, a, a large number of you. So that's encouragement because that community is so important. See, this is how the enemy works. He likes to isolate us, and then once we're isolated, circumstances will take place that, that can confuse, bewilder, tempt, and, and without a community of believers speaking into that, going, Mark, are you stupid? What are you thinking about? I, I mean, I need that. I need someone to look at me and say, you, I, I see you do this. This isn't consistent with what you say you believe. And I'm like, okay, sorry, what do I do? Well, you need to repent. Okay. And then hopefully I repent and, and then move on. But we need, that's how, that's how the Christian walk is designed by Jesus to work. We need that. I'm from the South. I'm just going to meddle a little bit here. I'm from the South. And in the southern part of the United States of America, people genuinely just kind of speak their minds. And for the most part, in, in Southern culture, what you see is what you get. Can I just tell you, that is not true in the upper Midwest. Don't you know? We've got this veneer of everything is great. We're the perfect family in the perfect house with the perfect children, and we make good grades and have great jobs and do all these things and, 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 and go to the Caribbean in January and all this stuff. And on the outside, it looks great, but on the inside, there's darkness, there's turmoil, there's deception. And there's anger. There's all this sickness, spiritual sickness that's going on. You're like, well, Pastor Mark, how do you know that? I've been a pastor in this state for the better part of 20 years in different churches, and I've seen it firsthand. I've dealt firsthand with people who I thought, they've got it all together. And they come in and sit down, and their lives are falling apart, all because of this veneer. Folks, that is not how God has called us to live together. That's another good place for an amen. I should have let you put this on my ear earlier. So I want to encourage you in that. Don't live a lie. Or at least be aware of opportunities to be transparent. That, that's what we're about. Our conclusion. Let's go back to the contrasting lives of father and son. On the one hand, we have David. Let's listen to some of David's words in the attitude of his heart. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Now, on the other hand, we have Solomon. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity. Vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity or all is meaningless. What about us? With which of these two positions do our hearts most closely resonate? 
Both David and Solomon had intimate encounters with the Lord. Both were faced with and succumbed to temptation such as is common to man. But only one looked steadily without wavering to the coming of Messiah, the Redeemer. King David understood the danger of embracing sin and disobedience. In an effort to fill a void only Christ can fill through his atoning, atonement and saving grace. During the Feast of Pentecost, Peter addresses the crowds in Jerusalem with the following words. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David understood that satisfaction was found and is found only in a deep, intimate commitment to the ways of the Lord and what that looks like in our lives. Was he 100% successful? No, he missed it. But even in his failure, when he was confronted with it, he was quick to turn. Solomon stresses that there's no satisfaction to be found under the sun apart from our relationship with Christ and the work of the cross in our lives. For in Christ alone dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form, and we are complete in him. Let's pray.